0: always do a really good job. That's one of the cool things about Thrive, if you haven't figured that out. Tell your friends. Um, before we get started, I do want to mention one thing that I don't think we've mentioned very much here at Thrive, but we've mentioned on Sunday mornings, so I want to mention it again, is um, we have, in a few weeks starting, Good Shepherd's launching what's called Fathom, and some of you may have seen the signs around, and that's pretty much like, you can think of it as Seminary Junior. Like it, it's a place where you can come and go as deep as you want to in your faith. And it's gonna be, there's gonna be classes taught by different people. Um, I'm teaching some, some of the people here teaching, Talbot's teaching, there's, there's a whole catalog that we've put together, and it's gonna be right outside after the service, so if you don't have one, grab one, because the way you register for a Fathom class is you uh, fill out the sheet and turn that into the office. But there's some really cool classes coming up this fall, and then in the spring, and then hopefully on and on. We really want to be a church that's heavy in discipleship, that takes you deep uh, instead of just wide. So before I get into the message, even though John and April uh, just prayed wonderfully, I'm going to pray again because this message is a final message in our series on prayer. So what a better way to kick it off. God, we've spent over a month now learning about prayer. And I want to confess that we are just beginning to scratch the surface of what you have to teach us about communicating with you. Lord, I pray that we realize the immensity just of the concept of being able to address the sovereign Lord of the universe and that you actually listen. And that you listen to all of us. And so, Lord, I know there are people here with burdens. Uh, I'm one of them. Lord, I pray that you would lift our burdens for the next hour, for the next uh, 40 minutes, however long, that you would allow us to hear from you and to to get a tiny glimpse of true prayer. I pray that all that we've learned through this whole series uh, would come home, would sink in, and that we would leave here in some way different than when we came. But well, there's no way we can do that, Lord. There's no way I can do that. The best speaker in the world, the best music in the world, none of that could do that. The Holy Spirit is what transforms. The Holy Spirit, I pray that you would transform us. Lord, we love you. And we want to love you more. So come visit us now in a real way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the last in the series on prayer, and usually you want to end with something that's up, instead of something like anguish. Um, Well, the good news is that that there is an upside to anguish in prayer, and hopefully we'll see that. I tried to think of a clever way to open, you know, a good good speaker has an opening, like maybe a story or an anecdote. I got nothing. Uh, I'm a Bible teacher, I like teaching the Bible, and I don't want to waste your time telling something that's not in the Bible that I wouldn't do well anyway. So let's jump into it. Uh, We're going to look, there's a, the cool thing about scripture is there's stories in there that most of the time we don't even know. And even if we know the story, we don't remember it. Um, And a lot of times we don't make connections. And and one of those stories is what we're going to look at tonight. It's back in the book of 1 Samuel. It's one of the earlier books in the Bible. And I, I... I think one time in maybe a staff meeting or maybe talking with Talbot, I shared something about this passage that kind of hit me a long time ago, and he was like, I want you to preach on that one day. And so when this series came up, um, built into it, he said, I want you to preach on what you were telling me about from that story. And so I want us to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1, the very beginning of the book of Samuel. And we're going to read it, but I want to walk you through this story because it's such a cool story, and it has so much to say that, that we may miss if we just read through. Because the book of Samuel is about, anybody want to take a guess who the book of Samuel has to do with? Samuel? Yeah. A lot of it, especially the beginning, is about a guy named Samuel. And so this is sort of, if you were in biblical studies, this would be classified as a birth narrative, where it tells the story of the hero's birth under... Um, improbable circumstances, and there's a prophecy about his life, and he'll go on to fulfill that, and and we could analyze that and look at it in literary ways and things, but the cool thing is that the first chapter of Samuel isn't even about Samuel, really. It's about his mom. It's about a woman named Hannah, and I think Hannah's got a lot to teach us about prayer, especially about the anguish of prayer, so let's jump in. Uh, There should be a Bible somewhere around you. If there's not, it'll be up on the screen. First Samuel 1. There was a certain man from Ramathiam, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jehoram, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other, Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Okay, I'm going to pause right there for just a second. What did we just read? Um, Those are all well-known names, right? Tohu, Zuf, Elihu, right? I don't need to belabor that point. Um, we're so familiar with them, we can skip. No, what, why are these names listed here in the beginning? Why does it matter? Well, in Scripture, if you're important or if you have any standing in society, you have a genealogy. And you can trace your genealogy all the way back to which tribe you are from. And so right at the outset, this is telling us that this guy, Elkanah, he was from the tribe of Ephraim, legitimately. And he was in, in pretty well standing. It also tells us that he had two wives. And let me say something about the whole polygamy thing before, because so, everybody's going to say, wait a minute, two wives, what's going on here? So let's just clear up some things. Uh, the setting for this is about 1105 B.C., give or take, about 1,100 years before Jesus. And at this time, Israel is making the transition from a nomadic people that were slaves that came out of Egypt, that have no permanent home, into the monarchy that they would become under King David and then King Solomon. This is the transition time. And the period is known as the period of the judges. Now, one of the things that characterizes the period of the judges is that there's no central government. uh, There's no central um, everything from law enforcement, um, from, like, even genealogies, they have to almost take people at their word. There's there's just not a lot of organization to society. It's almost kind of, Anarchy. And actually it ended up being anarchy. The book of Judges ends by saying that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And that's not a good pronouncement. So this is a dark time in Israel's history. Well, Israel was a people in the Middle East, the ancient Near East actually. And one of the things that all of the cultures in the ancient Near East practiced was polygamy. It wasn't God's intention from the beginning. God set out that the beginning would be one man, one woman for life. People don't listen to God very much, uh, especially those that aren't in covenant with him. And so polygamy was rampant in the ancient world. There were logistical reasons for polygamy. One of them was, if you are a nomadic herdsman, you need help. If you own 50,000 goats, you've got to have people that can help you keep them in line. And so you can have servants. You can have, the main place that it comes from is family, children. And the more children you have, the more help you have. The more wives you have, the more children you can have. This is the thinking in the ancient Near East. Uh, So that was one reason, economic reasons. Another one was because in the ancient Near East, women were not at all valued or protected. And so if you were a woman, it was better to be in a polygamous relationship than to not have a household to belong to because you literally had no way to take care of yourself, except for the world's oldest profession. Uh, And that's usually what people turn to. So there was economic reasons, logistical reasons, one of the other re- reasons that was really interesting, though, is if a man married and his wife was barren, it was expected that he would take another wife because he had to produce children to carry on his family line. And so there's no, there's no certainty as to, it doesn't say why Elkanah had two wives, but what it tells us about him is that one, he's, he's pretty well off. If you could afford a larger family, pretty well off, and two, we find out that Hannah doesn't have any children, but Panina does. And it's very likely that Panina was taken because Hannah couldn't have any children. And so under this culture, uh, Hannah's not in a great situation. In fact, she's pretty miserable. Not only was childbearing seen as something that you needed to do that was practical, but it was also seen as if God doesn't like you and you're a woman, he'll close your womb and you won't have children. That was the mindset of the day. And so having children was seen as a blessing. Having children was seen as a sign of divine favor. Not being able to have children was seen as a sign of divine curse by the people around Israel. So it's no surprise that during this period in Israel's history, these beliefs, these ideas, these practices have crept into Israel. And that's what we find here. We find Elkanah, and he's a faithful Israelite, and we're going to find out he's, he's pretty devout, but at the same time, he's also got one foot in his culture. So I say all that because a lot of times we want to just jump back into the Bible and, and just ignore the cultural differences, and then we just see, oh, he's married to two people. Oh, well, God can't be anywhere in this. Think of the junk in our lives that God works with, and that should give us a little bit of grace. So the situation, Hannah, no children. Penina, numerous children. Let's keep going, verse three. Year after year, this man, meaning Elkanah, went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests to the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and because the Lord had closed her womb. Now we're starting to see a little bit more of the picture. This guy, Elkanah, he's he's devout because at this point in Israel's history, one, there's no temple. If you know any of the flow of the Old Testament, maybe you don't, but the temple in Jerusalem was 100 years away into the future. This was a time when there was no centralized government. The closest thing was the tabernacle, which is the tent that God had him build when they came out of Egypt that they would worship him in, that was mobile. That tent, and it came to rest in a place called Shiloh, kind of up in the north. And the priests at the tabernacle were the closest things there were to officials over the land. And every year it says Elkanah would go up for a feast. It doesn't say which. There were a number of feasts that the Israelites practiced. Feast of unleavened bread, feast of tabernacles. We don't know which one and it doesn't say. But the fact that he did it year after year shows he's he's pretty devout. What we also see from this is that Hannah is in a favored position. He loves Hannah. And that, to me, speaks more to you know, her probably being the first wife and then Panina coming along late, being able to have kids. And, uh, but from a physical, from a, a logistical standpoint, Hannah's not doing too bad for herself. She's in a decent family. She's got a God-fearing man, and she gets double the banquet every time they eat. Most you may not know, but when you sacrifice in Israel, we, we think everybody just took the sacrifices and the priest took them and burned them up or did something. And then, usually the priest would burn a portion of the sacrifice that God had specified, and then the rest of the sacrifice, the meat, this was how Israel kind of got their meat. Uh, the priests were sort of like the butchers. You devote a little bit to God, you give some to the priest, and then you take the rest home and you eat it with your family as a meal, as a fellowship meal. And so when it was time for the fellowship meal, Um, Hannah got a double portion. Let's read on and see what happens. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, said to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? So the situation, two wives. One is sort of able to produce children and to grow the family, um, but she's not the most loved. The other can't do what in her mind and in society's mind at the time is her existence or reason for existence. She can't do it. And so there's this rivalry that goes on. And Panino, we find out, pretty much kind of holds it over Hannah. And the word, the, the way it's translated, the NIV would irritate her, uh, is a very light translation. Um, she would pretty much either verbally, psychologically, possibly physically abuse her to some extent. So much so that Hannah became depressed. Did you catch the, that she wouldn't eat? You know, that's one of the main symptoms of depression, is when, when you lose your appetite because of something you're going through. Now, from Elkanah, he's thinking, Anna, come on, what's the big deal? You got me, right? <laughs> That's what he's saying. He's like, aren't I better than ten sons? And he's saying, no. <laughs> One, because you have another wife. Um, Maya, you, I don't have your undivided love. But she's also saying that because in a way that those of you that are my gender can't understand, uh, she can't have children, and, and among women who, who are wanting to have children, a lot of times that desire is, is inexplicably strong, at least from our perspective as guys. But it's devastating. Um, a side note, it continues to be devastating. Uh, it, some people in here probably have struggled as couples with fertility issues, and, and um, you know, it's not something that we make light of. In fact, at Good Shepherd, we have a group that's called the Healing Hearts, and it's specifically for people, couples, women that struggle with fertility issues. And I uh, just throw that out, that out because a lot of people may not know that. It may be your first time. You may know somebody who's going through that, or you may be going through that. We can help with it. Uh, if you do have questions after the service, talk to Rich Tuttle, our pastor of congregational care, and, and he'll give you more info. So Hannah, can't have children, has to share her husband, constantly provoked and irritated by her rival year after year after year. That's where we left off, right? All right. Let's look. Verse 9, once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. This is the tabernacle. Eli the priest would serve in the tabernacle. The meal would be eaten in a vicinity near the tabernacle because it was a sacrificial meal. So during this, Hannah stands up. Verse 10, in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly and she made a vow saying lord almighty if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son then i will give him to the lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head okay that's a little weird prayer request like what's the big deal what what is what's this talk about razor in his head and dedicating and everything this is where knowing the culture again comes into play because back in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 6, God spelled out ways that people, normal, everyday Israelites, who really wanted to serve him, you know, who wanted to just do something, but who weren't from the tribe of Levi, which is where the, God got designated, this is where the temple workers are going to come from, the religious people, they're going to come from Levi's tribe. Well, all the other 11 tribes, if there was somebody in there that wanted to serve the Lord, they could take a vow. And they could take a certain kind of vow, and it was called a Nazarite vow. And under the Nazarite vow, there were a couple of stipulations, but one of the things involved was, was during the whole length of the vow, not cutting your hair. You would, take your, you would shave your head, you would take your vow, then your hair would grow until whenever the time that you had vowed was over, and then you could cut it again. Uh, you may have heard of a Nazarite or two in Scripture. One is Samson. He was a famous Nazarite. Uh, there's some others. There's some others we see that what what Hannah's saying here is, Lord, I am so desperate. If you will give me a son, I will give him back to you. I just want to have that joy, that honor of having a child, of bearing a child, of, of contributing to my family, of doing my duty, of all of the things she wanted, but I will give him back to you. It's kind of a weird prayer, you know? It's kind of like me saying, Lord, if you will just give me a brand new car, I'll give it right back to you. You know, like the purpose of God, of getting something from God, usually is to have and to keep and to use. Usually. But here we see the beauty of Hannah's prayers. She wasn't wanting something to have, to keep, to use. She was wanting something to give. And that speaks volumes to Hannah's character. Makes this vow to the Lord. Very, very serious vow. Look at verse 12. This is where it gets interesting. As she kept praying unto the Lord, Eli, the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice wasn't heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. The priest of God in the tabernacle where people come and worship and pray... At this time in history, apparently people have not been doing that a lot because when he finally sees somebody who's actually praying and pouring out her soul, he thinks she's drunk. And she's just totally misunderstood. So Hannah's been uh, she's physically taken care of, but she's spiritually destitute because she's been abused by her rival. She's been what she feels abandoned by God. Uh, she's been sort of. I don't know, I'd say misunderstood by her husband in his attempt to kind of cheer her up. Hey, you got me. And now she's misunderstood by the person who's supposed to stand between her and God and mediate. So things are looking bad for Hannah. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And it's like, look, I'm not drunk. I'm not crazy. I'm just suffering. And I don't know what else to do but just to pour it out to God. And the reason that you saw me, what you thought was talking, but you didn't hear me is because I wasn't talking to you. I was talking to God. And I don't even know if it will do any good, but Lord, pour out my soul. That's such a cool metaphor. She, uh, just everything in her, just all of the uh, stuff that she can't even put into words, she just pours out. Look what Eli says. Look at his response. Verse 17, Eli answered, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Verse 18, she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. Did you notice that Hannah didn't really get an answer from God? Anybody catch that? I mean, Eli, he said, may God give you what you want. Something happened between her pouring out her soul in anguish and then Eli the priest saying, let God make it happen. I hope he does. Something in that was enough to just give Hannah from wherever the ability to to say, okay, I trust. I have faith. Thank you, Lord. She goes home. She becomes a wife again. And eventually, she's going to become a mother. God remembered her. But the neat thing is that, that there's no voice from the clouds. There's no epiphany. There's no nothing. She just, she comes to God and she takes all of her junk and pours it out to him. And then after she's done that, and after she shared it with somebody else there, then she takes, I don't know how, but she's by faith, Lord, you've heard me, you're going to take care of it. She worships, and she goes home and carries on her life. And that, to me, is fascinating. Because we're expecting, this is the Bible, right? God should be speaking out of clouds and, you know, parting seas and multiplying fish and loaves and doing all this stuff, and none of that's in this story. But yet Hannah knows somehow, somehow, by pouring out her soul, by praying in her deep anguish to the point where she was even mistaken for being drunk, somehow she realized God heard her and that he was going to take care of her. And she was able by faith to walk out and with her head up to go eat something. I want to, real quick, before we mention some things, I want to finish this because this is what's really neat. The promise she made was, if I have a son, I will devote him to the Lord. Now, it's real easy to make a lot of promises to God when you want something. You know, there's, I mean... There's so many clips we could show, if we wanted to, of people saying, Lord, I promise that you'll do, and and they have no intention of it. Um, So the question is, okay, Hannah, you made this big promise that you would give your child back to the Lord for the rest of his life. Let's see what kind of person Hannah is. Verse 20, so in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for it. Uh, Samuel in Hebrew is uh, Shmuel, and Shmuel sounds a lot like um, asked of God, Shamael. So there's kind of a link there. Um, When Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy's weaned, I'll take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. And if you read the rest of the chapter, that's exactly what she did. She enjoyed the early years of being a mother and of all of that that comes along with it. And, and, but then when it was time, she ended up giving him back to the Lord. He turns out to become Samuel, the last judge in Israel's history, the man who would anoint Israel's first and second kings, Saul and David. One of the most important figures in Israel's history. So that's what he goes on to become. And the rest of the book of Samuel is about that. But the very opening part, all of that, Israel's history, Is born out of the situation of a woman with deep anguish, not knowing what to do, being persecuted on all sides, it seemed, or misunderstood or belittled, and she just pours it out to the Lord. Visibly, almost audibly, she just pours it out to the Lord. And then she has the faith to know that God heard her, and she goes home. And then we see what God does with the situation. It's really interesting, and the reason I wanted to, I guess that we wanted to end this series looking at this passage is because it, how do I say, it gives a glimpse that prayer is not always what we think it is. Prayer, there's no, get this, if you have this in your minds, hopefully you don't, but if you do, get this out of your mind. There's no right way to pray. If you're talking to God, if you're just Sharing with God, if you're pouring out your soul, if you're, like Talbot mentioned a while back, don't even have words to say, and and God's given you the gift of prayer language, and you're just sharing with God. If if you are communing with God and being intentional about spending time with him, then you're praying right. And that's one of the things that I like, is that this doesn't give us, this story, all of the things we want. Like, I want to know, well, what exactly was it that she said or did that moved God to actually answer this prayer? that may not have moved him to answer other people's prayers on things. Because there's going to be plenty of prayers later in Scripture where God's not going to give them the answer they want, but in this one he did. The text doesn't say. It doesn't give us those details because prayer isn't a formula. What it does is it gives us a glimpse that if we want something from God so bad that we're willing to to pour out ourselves, and that we're willing to even give it back if he does say yes, then that speaks a lot to our motives and that, yeah, this, this may be something that God wants to do in our lives. If we're not willing to, to continue to persevere in prayer and continue to pour out our soul for the Lord over something, do we really want it that much? This is such a neat story also because it gets rid of this horrendous idea that somehow God is up in heaven not affected by his people. In the Middle Ages uh, about the Middle Ages, somewhere between 800 A.D. and 1300 A.D., somewhere in there, uh, that was when theology kind of flourished in Europe. All of these universities were founded, um, these, these great doctors of the church, and, and they would you know, just spend years and years and, and debating and pouring into scripture and discussing topics that were just vital to your spiritual life, like how many angels could fit on the head of a pen. And how ma- they actually did try to figure that out. Um, it, my point in the medieval age is theologians just sort of went nuts and tried to push and answer every theological question and systematize every single thing that they could and it almost became an activity. Well, one of the doctrines that arose among Christians in that time, uh, and if some of you come from a more high church background or a theological background, you may have heard it, but it was called divine impassibility. And what that meant was, and some big names in church history you know, put forward, is that God can't actually be affected by his creation because that would mean that there's something imperfect about God if, a, if, if his creation can cause him or move him to act. So really, when he acts because of his creation in Scripture, it just appears that way. But in actuality, God is this impassive, unchangeable, timeless, perfect, basically is everything that the, the pagan Greek philosopher said he was, and nothing of what the Hebrew Bible says he is. But that's stuck around. You'll even find churches today that may slip that in their creed that, you know, God is impassable. God's not impassable. God is not unmoved by his creation. Um, God is very much moved by us, and that's one of the biggest mysteries. that I, I can't even begin to comprehend how the God of the universe can somehow be moved by my prayer to do something. That he has allowed himself to be moved. But he does, and he does in Scripture, and it's everywhere. God wants real prayer. Prayer that believes that. That we believe when we ask God something, even if He says no, He's still going to respond to our prayer. That's real prayer. There's a lot of things that Christians are good at. One of the things that Christians are not good at is making movies. Have you noticed that? We stink at making movies. Um, Let's just be honest. There was a movie that captured what real prayer is better than any other movie I've ever seen, and it was not made by Christians. And while that's a shame, at the same time, that's also God saying, yeah, I can speak outside of the body of Christ. I can speak truth. Well, the movie, anybody seen The Apostle? Has anybody seen the movie? Such a good movie. If you've never seen The Apostle, you're going to want to after you see this clip. Uh, I want to show a clip from The Apostle. Just to briefly set it up The the Apostle is a a story about a very uh, fiery, Pentecostal, charismatic, southern, uh, no, West Texas preacher, East Texas, whichever one. And uh, who's just, he's an evangelist, he travels, he's just sort of a walking cliche of what most people think charismatic Christians are. And throughout the movie, near the beginning, we find out that he's also got some character flaws, and that in all his travels in the past, that there's been some unfaithfulness. But his wife knows about it, but yet has still just sort of did what people do sometimes, and just kind of pushed it to the side. And actually, she started having an affair with the youth pastor. And so then, she maneuvers the church body, this is a that's ruled by I guess elders, moves them to, to, to basically fire him. So she sort of gets the church to kind of kick him out of the church that he started, that he founded, and that he really does love. So right after he finds out that they've removed him uh, is the scene that we're about to watch. And I want you to to listen to his prayer. And some of it you may laugh because it's very much just his language. And throughout the whole movie, he's one of those that's just, thank you, Jesus, blessed Jesus, thank you, Jesus, You know, every other word. But behind that, in this scene, you actually see what I think is real, authentic prayer. And if we as Christians could learn to pray like this, I think this would be a whole different church. So go ahead and let's show this clip real quick.
1: Has taken my wife They stole my church That's a temple I built for you And I'm going to yell at you Because I'm mad at you I can't Take it Give me a sign or something Blow this pain out of me Give it to me tonight Lord God Jehovah If you won't give me back my wife Give me peace Give it to me Give it to me Give it to me Give me peace Give me peace I don't know who's been fooling with me You are the devil I don't know, and I won't even bring the human into this. He's just a mutt, so I'm not even gonna bring him into it, but I'm confused, I'm mad. I love you, Lord, I love you, but I'm mad at you. I am mad at you. So deliver me tonight, Lord. What should I do? Now tell me, should I lay hands on myself? What should I do? I know I'm a sinner and I'm once in a while woman, but I'm your servant. Since I was a little boy, you brought me back from the dead. I'm your servant. What should I do? Tell me. I've always called you Jesus, you always called me Sonny. What should I do, Jesus? This is Sonny talking now. right. You let me down. Now, heal this broken heart. Hello?
0: Oh, well, that's, that is my son, that he's, I tell you, ever since he was a little bitty boy, uh-huh. he sometimes talks to the Lord, and sometimes he yells at the Lord, and tonight he just happens to be yelling at him.
1: Well, could you tell him to talk a little softer or whatever, because people got to get their sleep in, Do you? you know what time it is? Hello? Now, I'm calling you to talk to Sonny. You don't talk to Sonny tonight, it seems like.
0: When's the last time that you found yourself praying like that? Sometimes he talks to the Lord. Sometimes he yells at the Lord. The rest of the movie goes on to show what God does and how in the end, um, through all of this adversity and everything, I won't give it away, but God does what he's going to do. But I love that. I love when he says, I love you, Lord, but I am mad at you. Because that's anguish. When you can, and that's honesty. When you can say, "Lord, I love you, but I'm so mad at you right now," and not immediately go, "But I know I shouldn't be, and so uh, I'm really not angry with you. I just think I'm angry," and you try to theologize it away. No, God doesn't want that. God doesn't need that. God's bigger than our anger. He can handle us being mad at Him. And it's when we can pour out our soul, and we can pray in deep anguish, when we can approach God with that sense of, "Lord, I love you, but I'm mad." And don't feel like we have to shortchange either of those. God's moved. God is moved. He's moved by our pain. God's moved by our anguish. Now, this is in the New Testament as well. Some of you are like, well, that's the Old Testament. That doesn't count. Talk to me afterwards. Uh, In the New Testament, anybody know, somebody in here probably knows, what's the shortest verse in the whole Bible? Jesus wept. You might know why. Yes, that's that's exactly every yes. John chapter eleven. We don't. We're not going to go there and look at it. I'm not going to spend any time. But in John chapter eleven, Jesus finds out that his one of his best friends. In fact, the only person in the book of John that is described as the the one Jesus loved. He dies. And so Jesus gets word, he's out of town, Lazarus, the one you love, is dead. So Jesus waits three days, and then on the fourth day goes back. Uh, When he gets there, he sees all the people at Lazarus' house. Now Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And some of you, you know about Mary and Martha. Well, when Jesus comes to the house and he's approaching, Martha runs out to meet him. And read this on your own this week. I'm not going to put it up here, but basically what Martha does is she comes out and she says, Lord, if you were here, she starts to get, if you were here, this wouldn't have happened. But then she really quickly says, but I know that you can do all things and that you can, you know, I, I know that you're good and, and, and I'm not really mad. You know, she sort of backpedals a little bit. And then Jesus asks her a question about, do you believe that he can live? And she says, well, yeah, at the resurrection, you know, we'll all live because we'll all be raised from the dead. And uh, Jesus says, no, 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 I am the resurrection. You know? and, and so then he approaches closer. Her sister Mary runs out. And Mary just runs up to Jesus, falls down, weeping, and she just says, if you had been here, he would not have died. And that's all she says. And then it says, uh, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she fell at his feet. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. What moved Jesus, God incarnate, what moved him, what deeply troubled him, what gave him anguish enough to feel and to respond and to act was the anguish that he saw that was real. That Mary had just come and laid at his feet. She didn't try to sugarcoat it. She didn't try to pray the correct prayer. She didn't try to, you know, flatter him with She just, here it is, Jesus. I'm mad because if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. And that's what moved Jesus to weep. And that's what moves God to act. God is not impassable. Don't that is a lie from the pit of hell. God is not impassable. God is moved by our pain. Anybody that says otherwise has not read this book. And he wants us to just pour out our pain to him. If we're feeling it, bring it on, God says. Because somehow, in a way that I won't even try to explain, through our anguish, through our pain, pouring it out to God, him receiving that, something happens between us and him that strengthens us and honors him. But he doesn't want us to just come with our pain he also wants to come with our trust too to hold the two together like i said to, he wants our tears and he wants our trust and we can share both we don't have to try to clear it up we don't have to try to figure it out before have you ever tried to figure out things before you pray for him like okay if i want this but i know it's not god's will then i can i need to say god if it's not your will and then i can we sort of try to play you know mental chess with god and he's always going to win oh uh, He doesn't want that. He just wants us to come and just, Lord, here's my pain, but I'm going to hold on to trust. I'm not going to deny either. Here it is. And that's when prayer becomes prayer. That's when prayer transforms us. That's when prayer becomes real. He is. God's moved by our pain, He wants our tears, He wants our trust the question that I want to leave us with as we finish this series on prayer is do we pray as if this is true? Do we pray that, like we believe that God is somehow moved? When we say a blessing before a meal, are, do we actually, are we actually thanking God or we just do that because we want to be a good Christian and people are looking? I mean, because the Bible doesn't say you have to, so if you do, it should be heartfelt, right? You know, do we believe that God when we begin with prayer, when we end with prayer, when we're praying throughout the day, when we're riding in our car, just praying about random things, however, do we believe that God is moved by our prayers? I don't always. And I confess that, I mean, I I find myself doing you know, mechanical, by the book type prayers a lot, a lot more than I'd like to. But I wanna challenge us and I wanna challenge me and I wanna challenge Good Shepherd to start at least asking, Lord, I wanna believe this, help me believe it. And then if when we start believing it, Lord, I believe this, help me walk in it. And I think that that's how we'll begin to grow in our prayer lives. Just like I said, I couldn't really come up with a fancy way to begin. I don't really have a fancy way to end. I don't have anything that you can take and that can symbolize something. I, you know, I tried to think of something, some way to end, and, you know, maybe have stations. Of fr- Hannah didn't have any of that. Hannah just got up during the meal and went over and just wept to God. Probably was a little bit awkward for those that were still eating. Uh, but that's what she did. And so, I just, as we end tonight, as, as the band plays, if you need to pour out to God, just do it, however you want. Hannah did it with her mouth moving but not saying anything. If you want to come pray up front, if that's something that you need to do to feel it, great. Go for it. If you'd like me or any of the other staff here to, to pray for you, we'd love to. Or if you just want to sit there. Some of you may not be going through anguish. You may be going through a high, a spiritual mountaintop. Then pray for those that aren't. But as we end this series, needs the challenge that I want to leave us with, that I think God wants to leave us with, is do we pray as if we believe that he's moved by our pain? Let me close us with a prayer. The band's going to play, and we'll let God be God. Lord, I pray that, that, that I would believe the words that I'm saying more and more every day, and, and that... That we all would believe the words that you've spoken to us. That we would take to heart and and start to just begin to wrap our minds around the fact that you do care. You're not a distant, impassable, unchangeable, uh, emotionless, divine entity. You're the God who put skin on and wept at the tomb of his friend. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to experience you that way, no matter where we are right now. Lord, we pour out our hearts to you. Uh, hear our worship as we now sing. Uh, hear our prayers as we now pray. Thank you for being the God that you are. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen.